All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 28 through 31. Uh, if you're visiting with us, there are pew Bibles you can use. Uh, we'll be preaching from the black one. Uh, there's another church that meets here that we preach from the English Standard Version. But that's Mark, chapter 10, verses 28 through 31. We're continuing our study of Mark's Gospel. And this evening, we come to the conclusion of our Lord's interaction with the rich young ruler and his subsequent teaching of his disciples. Uh, but let me begin with a question uh, as I introduce this text. In your life as a Christian, do you ever wonder, is it all worth it? Is it worth it? Well, what I mean is, as you suffer various things for Christ's sake, as you lose things or are forced to leave things behind, as hardships come upon you because you are a Christian, do you ever ask yourself, is it all worth it? Now, most of us know the Bible too well and are too pious in our own minds to actually admit out loud that we've ever asked that question, right? We're too godly to ever ask, is it worth it? But in the dark moments, right, in the night watches, the dark night of the soul, as it were, when you're hurting, have you ever asked that question? Is it worth it? Now, maybe you haven't ever asked that question because your faith is very strong, and that's good, right? I hope that's true of all of us, although I don't think that's true of all of us, right? Or, or, or maybe you've never asked that question uh, because you've not been a Christian long enough to have, um, to have something like that happen to you that would make you ask the question. Or maybe you've not yet been bold enough about your faith in Christ and your unapologetic belief in his word to have experienced any heartache or trial for Christ's sake. I don't know. I don't know what the case is for you. But what I do know is that increasingly in our day, because we live in a society that continues down a path of further and further rebellion against God, I do know that it's beginning to cost us more and more to be faithful, Bible-believing, bold Christians. At some point in your life, it's going to cost. Let me say that again. At some point in your life, it's going to cost to be a Christian. For some, it's going to cost more. For some, it's going to cost less. And that really all depends upon the sovereign will of God and what he has ordained for our lives as individuals. But hear me. Gone are the days in our land where it will cost you nothing to be associated with Jesus Christ. In generations past in this country, it didn't cost much for a lot of people to become Christian or to be Christians, but those days are over. Maybe it'll cost you your job. Maybe it'll cost you friendships. Maybe it will cost you your reputation. Maybe it will cost you your family in some way. And on the day when the decision must be made, Christ or something else you very well may ask yourself the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Christ? Is losing this thing or this person worth being a Christian? Is it worth it? And let me tell you the answer on the front end of this sermon. Absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. And we will see that truth on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ in this text. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 10, verses 28 through 31. Peter began to say to him, that is Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Holy God, we come now to the throne of grace, expecting to be heard because you have promised to hear us in Christ. 
And we come expecting grace to help us in our time of need because you've promised us help in Christ. And so we ask now that you would help us to understand your word. Help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures so that we might leave here better than we came. That is trusting in your truth, believing you, and being willing to abandon all for Christ's sake. Have mercy on us and help us. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So our text begins with a statement from the Apostle Peter to our Lord Jesus. Now, Peter's the spokesman for the disciples, so really he's asking, or rather he's speaking on behalf um, of, the, of all the disciples. And in his statement to Jesus in verse 28, there's an implied question. Let me read verse 28 again. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Now the parallel account in Matthew 19, verse 27, sheds a bit more light on Peter's statement here and tells us what the underlying question was. Matthew 19 reads this. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What then will we have? Well, Peter wants to know what the disciples will have because they abandoned everything and followed Jesus when he called them. You'll remember Levi left his tax booth, right? Levi's Matthew left his tax booth and followed Jesus. Peter and the gang left their, right, left their fishing boats and went and followed Jesus. They're saying, Jesus, we left everything and followed you. What then will we have? But why does Peter ask this question? Well, to begin to answer that, let's remember the context in which we find this passage, right? The verses in the Bible don't just fall out of the sky. They come to us in context of the whole book that we find them in. So let's recap the last couple of weeks worth of sermons very briefly. You'll remember that the rich young ruler had just approached Jesus and asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus essentially tells the man to give up his idol, give up his false god, and follow him. And the man's god was his money. And so Jesus told him to sell all that he had, give the money to the poor, and come and follow him. But the rich young ruler chose his gold over God. And he went away sad and unsaved because he refused to lay down his idol of wealth. And then Jesus, upon the rich young ruler turning away and leaving, Jesus turns to his disciples and he begins to teach them in light of what had just occurred. And Jesus tells them that it is impossible for a rich person to be saved. Meaning, humanly speaking, it is impossible for a rich person to be saved. Humanly speaking, it is impossible for anyone to be saved. Jesus teaches his disciples that no man can buy, earn, or merit salvation. Jesus teaches that no man, or woman or child, on his own can change his own heart, change his own allegiances, lay down his idols, and come after Christ. Instead, such a conversion must be all the work of God, right? Jesus tells him it is impossible for man to do anything to save himself. It's all God's work to save sinners. And then Peter asks this question. After that, Peter asks this question. So in light of all that's just happened, in light of what Jesus has just taught about salvation being impossible for human beings to accomplish, that it must be God's work, in light of the rich young ruler turning Christ down with his offer of eternal life and holding on to his wealth, Peter asks, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? But what did he mean? What was Peter's intention, right? Why did he ask that question? Well, there's, there's, there's three answers that I've found that interpreters like to give for this. And, and honestly, this is tough, right? Because the, the Bible doesn't come on audio. And what I mean is the original, right? It wasn't read by Mark, right? We don't know what Peter's voice sounded like in this. We don't know what kind of tone he used. And that makes sometimes it hard to interpret the scriptures. So th this is actually tough. Like, what did Peter mean whenever he asked this question? Well, three options for you. First, some interpreters think that Peter's being a brat here. Right? They think basically that that's, that's my way of saying it, that Peter's being a brat. Right? We did, from Peter's perspective, we did what the rich young ruler wouldn't do. So we must have a lot coming our way, huh, Jesus? Right? Like we're better than him. He was so foolish. We obeyed you, so our reward must be massive, right? right? That's how some people think Peter meant this question. Now listen, Peter does put his foot in his mouth from time to time. I think it was in chapter 8 of this gospel that Peter told him, get or Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. 
right? Peter makes a fool of himself from time to time. Um, but I don't think that this understanding is quite fair. If you'll notice in our text, Jesus never rebukes him. Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter in this exchange, but instead gives him an incredibly comforting word of encouragement. So I don't think Peter was being a brat or self-righteous here. Uh, a second interpretation is that Peter is being sincere here. He's lacking assurance of his salvation. He's lacking assurance that he'll be granted entrance into the kingdom of God. And so he's asking Jesus a legitimate question. If salvation is all of God, think about this. If salvation is all of God, and it's impossible for anyone to earn or merit entrance into the kingdom, then Peter may have been thinking, well, if salvation is all of God, then does our forsaking all to follow Jesus matter for anything? Does it matter? Will we receive the kingdom? Will we be saved? Did we forsake everything for nothing? What will we have, Jesus? What about us? Or still a third interpretation offered is that Peter is just being sincerely curious about what their reward's going to be, right? It's not so much a lack of assurance here, but he's just curious. What will our reward be? So it's as if Peter is saying, Jesus, you told the rich man that he would have treasure in heaven and have eternal life if he sold all and followed you. Now, we disciples didn't give up as much as he would have because we're not rich, but we did obey your call and follow you. Right? We did obey your call and we did follow you. We didn't abandon as much, though. So then what will we get? What will our reward be? You promised the rich young ruler a reward. What will ours be? What place will we have? Of all three interpretations, I think the second or third is most likely. I believe Peter is being sincere. The disciples had really abandoned their lives in order to literally, physically follow Jesus during his earthly ministry. And in light of what has just happened with the rich young ruler and Jesus' teaching about the rich, Peter wants to know if it's all worth it. He wants to know what their reward will be since they obeyed the call to go after Christ. And that's, that's a legitimate question. No matter how you understand the exact tone of Peter's question, that's the heart of it. What will we get? And that's a legitimate thing to ask. Jesus, is it worth it? What will your disciples receive? What about us? Right? We recognize that those who refuse the call of Christ to lay down their lives and come to him in faith and follow him, we recognize that they will get nothing but condemnation and damnation in the final analysis, right? When everything's said and done, those who refuse Jesus will be damned. But what will we receive if we follow Jesus? It's a good question to ask. So Peter's question is essentially, what about us? Right? What do those who give up their lives and follow Jesus receive? And here's our Lord's answer. Verses 29 and 30. Let me read them to you again. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one, no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now we're going to focus on verse 29 a bit because it's a, a tad negative. I'd actually say it's fairly negative before we get into the glory of verse 30. But first, notice that Jesus makes this statement very broad. I don't believe that it's just for the 12. I don't think it's just for them. I think it's for all disciples. And I say that because he says, there is no one who has left. No one. This is broad. There is no disciple that is not included here. Or if I don't want to use a double negative, all disciples are included here. And I say that because every disciple has, in their heart at least, if not literally, given up everything for Christ. And why do I say that? Why do I say that every disciple has, at least in their heart, given everything up to follow Jesus? I say that because every disciple... That is, every legitimate Christian has heard and heeded and obeyed the call of the Lord Jesus Christ that says, I'm quoting from Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother 
and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then later on, Jesus says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says that you must love him more than your own family or you cannot follow him. That's what that language of hating your family means here. He's not literally commanding anyone to hate their family. What he means is that your love for him must be so great that your love for your family appears to be hatred if you compare the two. You must love him that much more or you cannot follow him. He says that you must bear your own cross if you're to be a disciple. That means that you must be prepared to suffer horribly and even die a horrible death for his sake. You must not even love your own life more than you love him or you cannot be his disciple. And then he says you must renounce all that you have. That's broad. You must lay down everything at the feet of Christ or you cannot be his disciple. Jesus says quite frankly that you must give up all that you are, let go of everything in this world, live with an open hand to everything. If things come, great. If they go, whatever. You must live with an open hand and follow after him in faith or you cannot be his disciple. You're either all in or you're all out. There are no half measures with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And hear me, every true Christian has come to Jesus with this attitude. Every person who has ever been saved, every disciple, every Christian has come to Jesus saying in their heart, I've come to the end of me and I must have Jesus. I'll give everything up and I'll leave everything if I must because I must have Jesus and the salvation that he gives to those who trust in him. That's the attitude that every Christian has. Now listen to me, I want to, I want to clarify something and I'll say this again here in a little while. Not every disciple has to literally give up everything. It's not true. Not everyone has to give up everything. Peter kept his house. That's the house that they met in. Peter kept his house, and he kept his wife. Right? We see that in the New Testament letters of Paul. Peter kept his wife. Another name for Peter is Cephas, just so you know that. Cephas has a wife, is what Paul says. Peter kept his house and his wife. The 12 who were fishermen, right? those of them who were fishermen, kept their boats. Because whenever Jesus met with them after his resurrection, some of them were fishing. They kept their boats, right? So it's not that every disciple has to give up literally everything always, but all Christians must have the attitude that says, I will give it up in a moment if I must in order to follow Jesus. I will do it. That's the heart of the true believer. That's the heart of the one who has been born again. That's the heart of the Christian that says, take this world, but give me Jesus. I must have him. And so, with that said, the words of our Lord here apply to every believer. Because every believer has this attitude. I'll give it all up for Christ. And he's talking about people who have given everything up for his sake. And listen to me. Some disciples have to leave the things that Jesus mentioned. Some of them do. They have to leave them behind for Christ's sake. And I want to walk through some of these and more than our text actually says. First, some disciples in obedience to Jesus leave their houses. They leave the comforts of home. Positively speaking, some are called to be pastors and missionaries. And so because of the unique call of Christ on their lives, they must leave their house. They must leave their comfort and go to a strange place in order to serve the people of God and make disciples. And so they leave their comfort, they leave their homes in order to be uncomfortable for the cause of Christ. In obedience, in discipleship, they leave their home for Christ's sake. 
But still yet, and more darkly, some disciples have lost houses for Christ's sake. Left them in another sense, as in they were forced to leave houses. Whether it be because of loss of income because they are Christians, or being kicked out of a family home for following Jesus, there are and have been believers who find themselves without a roof over their heads for Christ's sake. Now this doesn't happen very much in our country because there's still a remnant of Christian identity in the United States. We're coasting on the fumes. But mark it down that there have been and are brothers and sisters through the ages, throughout the world, and up to today who are homeless for Christ. It happens. And they leave houses in order to be faithful because they will not deny Jesus nor forsake him. Jesus also mentions in our text family, doesn't he? He mentions brothers, sisters, mother, father, and children. That's leaving your family for Christ. That's leaving your family. And again, this can have the connotation of missions work, like the disciples who had to physically leave their families for a time in order to literally follow Jesus around during his earthly ministry. But this also has reference to those brothers and sisters, as as I alluded to in, in the above point, Those brothers and sisters who are disowned by their family because of their allegiance to Christ and his gospel. Disciples are not only kicked out of homes, they are kicked out of households. Disciples are kicked out of families. Disciples are sometimes told to quit following Jesus or they are no longer welcome in their father's house. They're no longer welcome in the family. A couple examples of this. I know a believer in Kentucky not very far away from here, who was raised Jewish, devout Jewish family, whose own family had a funeral service for him the day he was baptized. He has a grave marker. His family disowned him the day that he was baptized because he followed Christ. Now, by God's grace, they've been able to have something of a relationship rekindled, but for years, his own mother wouldn't speak to him because he was considered dead. He's not part of this family anymore because he became a Christian. I know another good brother used to be a member of this church who will probably never be able to go visit his relatives in his home country because they, in all likelihood, would turn him into the authorities for being a Christian. He has family members he will never see again because they hate Christ. And I know still more, even in our own area, who are not welcomed by their family, even their own children, because their family considers them to be bigoted and hateful because they follow Jesus. And their relationships are severed. And yet, for Christ's sake, they have had to, with many tears, let their family members go and pray that God would see fit to restore what has been broken because their family hates the Lord Jesus. Still other disciples, Jesus says, have been forced to leave lands. Now that sounds strange. It sounds like you're moving. Uh, But lands probably means farms. Some of you guys read the New American Standard Bible, the NASB. That's actually how they translate that here. They translate it farms. So lands here has a reference to how someone makes money. In Jesus' day, many were farmers. It was an agricultural society. So Jesus makes reference here to people leaving their livelihoods for his sake. And that happens too, doesn't it? Christians are forced to choose between their job and Christ because their employer demands that they either commit sin or celebrate it. We think of our brother Nick Merriweather. Violate your conscience and sin against Christ or be fired. Praise God, he's fighting them in the courts and he seems to be doing pretty well. But there's an example. Christ or your job. Godless employers demand that Christians violate conscience or be fired. Godless employers demand that Christians work on the Sabbath day and be unable to attend the worship gathering or be fired. And so many Christians, for Christ's sake, must leave their jobs, their money, their livelihood, and their material comfort for Christ's sake. Not to mention that sometimes people don't get hired because they're Christians. And the employer knows it, and they don't want Christians working for them. And so they leave their money and their livelihood and their comfort behind because Jesus is worth it. To go a little bit further than our text here in Mark, in the parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke, Jesus mentions leaving your wife for his sake. 
Right? Now, that does not mean divorcing your wife or husband because there aren't Christians. That's a sin. Right? 1 Corinthians 7 says, If your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay married to you, then you stay married to them. Right? So it's, it's, Jesus isn't talking about divorcing your wife for Christ's sake. That's sinning for Christ's sake. That's stupid. Right? That, that's not how this works. That's not what he's commanding. Rather, this means that following Christ has led to the death of your marriage because your spouse will not go with you. Because the spouse is unconverted, they refuse to stay married to someone who loves Jesus. They refuse to tolerate the faith of the disciple, and so they cast the believer away through divorce. And the disciple is forced, in a sense, to leave them for Christ's sake. And this is all too common of a reality for many. Or, at the least, your marriage seems to be set on fire because you follow Jesus, even if your spouse hasn't divorced you. This is a situation where the Christian tells their spouse, I love you, but I will not stop following Jesus for you. And they lose their marriage. And with the loss of these things, there are still more losses that come with them, like the loss of reputation. That's a big one. Don't act like that's a small thing. The loss of reputation comes with following Christ, where the disciple becomes hated by their culture because they're Christians, because they refuse to bend to the demands of their culture or forsake Christ on any point, they're considered to be an enemy of that culture. Christian, note, this is the big one for us right now. This is probably the most common. You will lose your reputation in America for being a Christian. We live in the Bible Belt, so it'll take a little bit longer to get here, but it's coming. You'll be considered to be an enemy of the culture. Just so you know, that is what Christians in the first century were accused of. They weren't killed because they were Christians. They were killed because they were enemies of the culture. It just so happened they were enemies of the culture because they were Christians. People refused to bend and are counted and considered a bigot, a hater, a fanatic. And in being viewed that way, the Christian leaves behind their good name and reputation. For Christ's sake, mud has been thrown upon them, and they won't wash it off because to clean up their name would be to renounce Jesus Christ. And lastly, with the loss of family, job, house, and all that comes the loss of friendships. So often, Christians are forced to choose between their friends and Jesus because their friends, like their family members, hate Christ and his word. And because the Christian will not stop telling the truth, many of their friends, many of their unbelieving friends, no longer want anything to do with them. They're no longer invited to things. They're no longer part of the group. They are now outsiders because they have sided with Christ. And some of us in this church have experienced this and know the pain of losing friendships for Christ's sake. But the disciple chooses Christ over friends, for he is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So many Christians have been forced to leave and lose so much in this life. So many of the body of Christ have had to let go of so much that they once held dear and so many people that they still love and care for. So many have left all and followed after Christ. I want to make a quick clarification here as I said earlier. Not all Christians will lose all these things. Not all of us. We live in a country with a strong Christian past, and as I just mentioned, we live on the outskirts of the Bible Belt. So much of what Jesus has mentioned here has not happened to many of us so far in our lives. I use myself as an example. The day I became a Christian, out of atheism into Christianity, my family rejoiced. I didn't lose my mother or father that day. I didn't lose anyone in my family. Even the unbelievers in my family, because Christianity is so ingrained in, in, in my general family, even the unbelievers in my family said, you know, Dave, that's not for me, but like, I'm glad for you. I didn't lose anything like that whenever I became a Christian. right? Again, much of what Jesus has mentioned here has not happened to many of us so far in our lives. Not all Christians will literally lose and leave everything for Jesus. In some times and places, God has been abundantly kind to allow his church to live in relative peace for long periods of time. And we live in one of those places. But know this. All Christians must be willing to let it all go for Christ. 
You must be willing. All Christians must have this attitude. All Christians must sit loose to everything in this life. Hear me, Christian. You have to be willing to let it all go. If you have to choose between X and Jesus, you choose Jesus. Whatever the cost. If it's your job and faithfulness to Christ, you forsake your job. If it's between your child's affection and Jesus Christ, you choose Jesus over your children. If you must choose between your spouse and Jesus, you choose Jesus. If you have to choose between your reputation and Christ, you let your reputation be torn to shreds. We must be willing to let all go. And if the time comes, actually let it go. For Christ's sake. And please hear me. Please remember this. Don't, don't make this a, a Sunday thing. These are not mere hypotheticals. I know, how, I, I know what you do because I do it too. This is not a mere mental exercise. Like, oh yes, I could lose everything. No, this is a real possibility for us as followers of Jesus. If it weren't, Jesus wouldn't be talking about it here. We have to be willing to let it all go. Christians can and indeed do lose many things for Jesus. But Jesus goes on to tell us that anyone who leaves anything for him will be blessed. Let me read verses 29 and 30 again. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. We'll stop there. Jesus here speaks of blessings that we can expect to receive now in this time. Now in this time means in this age. Now in this time is contrasted with the age to come that he talks about in the next phrase. Now in this time means while we're on earth, there are blessings for us. Now let's be clear here. Jesus doesn't mean for us to take this literally. He's not preaching the prosperity gospel here that you see on television. He's not telling us that if you lose one house, you'll get a hundred houses. Right? Who wouldn't lose a house for Jesus' sake then, right? You immediately become a multimillionaire, you get a hundred houses. It's not what he's saying. He's not telling us if you lose a brother for his sake that you will literally get a hundred brothers as if your parents will procreate a hundred more siblings for you. That's not what he means here. Right? And we know that because it's impossible for us to ever have more than one literal mother. But Jesus says in this text that we will receive a hundredfold mothers. So this isn't meant to be taken in a wooden, literal sense. Jesus is speaking figuratively here. He's speaking spiritually here. And I think... To begin, at least in part of what Jesus is saying, is that we will receive a new family in this life. Now in this time, you'll get a new family. And this new family is a family that he gives us. This is his church. He's made, I'm convinced he's making a reference to the church here. By faith in Christ, we are made part of the family of God, the body of Christ. With God the Father as our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as our elder brother and head of the family. And this family is much larger than we could ever imagine. Is it not? Did you know, Christian, you have brothers and sisters that you've never met in Korea? Except North Korea and South Korea, China, Japan, Pakistan, Iran, everywhere. This family is larger than you could ever imagine. And the moment you believed... It became your family. And this family has more love than we could ever imagine because the love of Christ dwells in this family with more compassion than we could have ever imagined, with greater comfort, being led by the Spirit of God, greater comfort in this family than we could ever imagine. If we have to shut one door to one house and leave, Jesus says that he will provide us with 100 open homes to enter. 100 open homes with hundreds of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children. A family. And if we lose our land, that our job, then he will graciously provide for our needs through our new family because the people of God take care of one another. 
Jesus is telling us that he will bless us in this life with the communion of saints. Often when we recite the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed, we say we believe in the communion of saints. This is in part what he's talking about. The fellowship of the saints. If we must leave family, he's given us a better one. With brothers and sisters that are closer to us because of our mutual faith in Christ than our unbelieving blood relatives could ever be. I know for a fact some of us have experienced this. You're closer to your fellow Christian than you are your unbelieving brother. You're closer to an older woman that you go to church with than you are your own mother. I know some of us have experienced this. And listen, the sweetness of that fellowship is 100 times better than the earthly fellowship that we had with the family we lost. Now, I'm not saying that the pain would not, is not real from losing your family, but Jesus gives us a sweeter fellowship with a bigger family. The spiritual encouragement and tangible care of our new family will far surpass whatever family and land we've had to leave behind, says Jesus. So yes, we get a new family in Christ. Look around, Christian. This is your family. We get a new family in Christ. And there's a whole lot more that could be said about the communion of saints that I don't have time to get into. But I, but I don't have time for it because I believe Jesus intends this to be understood even broader and more spiritually than just the communion of saints. Right? Mark is highlighting the family aspect here. But in the parallel account in Luke 18... Jesus mentioned wives. He mentions leaving your wife, but receiving many times more. Just That's all he says, many times more. But listen, we're not going to get more wives in any sense, right? Certainly not more literal wives, plural. And certainly not spiritual wives, right? Like that's, how do you have a spiritual wife? We're not Mormons. Write that down. I know we have some visiting people here. We're not Mormons. We don't believe that you get a bunch of wives if you follow Jesus. So Jesus means this to be broader than just the communion of saints. He said, if you leave your wife, I'll give you a hundred times more. Our Lord's overall point is that he will make it worth the loss. He'll make it worth the loss. The gain that he will give you in this life, not to mention the life to come that we're going to get into in a moment, but what he promises to give in this life will make it worth it. And I think he intends us to think on the spiritual blessings that he gives us. Spiritual blessings that are 100 times better than any temporal earthly blessing that we could have ever had to have given up. I have five or six things here on a list for you. First, consider for a moment the peace you have with God through faith in Jesus Christ. What are you going to trade for that? What are you going to trade for peace with God? Knowing that your eternal destiny is secured in Christ. That God has no wrath for you any longer because Jesus took your sins upon himself and satisfied the righteous wrath of God on the cross. Knowing that though you're unrighteous because you sin, that the righteousness of Christ has been given to you through faith. And that God now welcomes you into his family as a son. That God now counts you as his friend instead of his enemy. Knowing now that God is your Father, what earthly thing could you ever give up that compares with that? And I'm not speaking glibly. I've, I sat and thought about this. What can you trade on earth that's worth more than peace, of, peace with God? Nothing on earth is worth more than that. To lay our heads down at night knowing that whether we live or die, we belong to our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ is an immeasurable blessing. And if you don't think that that's true, let me challenge you. You don't understand the depth of your sin and the glory of your own salvation. And I challenge you to think deeply on those things. Or second, consider the help that God has for you. Listen, like, but believer and unbeliever alike will suffer. Believer and unbeliever will have bad things happen to them, but the believer has the promise of God to be helped and counseled by him and consoled by him and comforted by him. Knowing that God will see you through and strengthen you and help you to withstand even your darkest days is worth more than your job. 
The help that comes from God is worth more than your job. Or what about the knowledge that God is for you? Listen, God is not for everybody. And I don't mean that like he won't save anybody. I mean for as in acting on behalf of someone for their good. Through Christ, Christian, God is for you. What earthly thing would you rather have than the almighty, sovereign God of the universe working on your behalf to do you good? What would you rather have? Nothing. To know that nothing befalls you except by the will of your Father who is working all things in your life according to his good will that is for your ultimate and eternal good. What is better than that? What about the freedom from sin that we have through Christ? That we don't have to be who we once were. You're free, Christian, no longer a slave to your flesh, no longer a slave to sin. But now, by God's grace, you can actually please him. Would you rather be a spiritual slave? Or would you rather be free? Or again, I know I said this earlier, but it bears repeating. Consider the assurance of salvation that you have in Christ. Nothing compares to this. Nothing compares to knowing that all your sins are gone because Christ has removed them as far as the east is from the west. Knowing that you belong to him and that nothing, nothing, not even you and your sinfulness and foolishness can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What would you rather have than the assurance of pardon and salvation through Jesus? Brothers and sisters, what would we rather have? Jesus gives us a new family, will provide for our needs, and gives us spiritual blessing on top of spiritual blessing. What have we lost or what could we lose ultimately that Jesus doesn't more than make up with in his people and his blessing in this life? Nothing compares with what Christ gives. But let's not forget something. Jesus says we get all of that with persecutions. With persecutions. It's not a utopia. You should appreciate that about our Lord. He's not a liar. He's not selling false goods or a bill of false goods. It's not a utopia. You'll be blessed as you follow Jesus. Of that, there is no doubt because Jesus promises it. But it will not be heaven on earth. That'll have to wait for later. You will be met with hostility in one way or another. There will be hardships in some way. In some ages, there will be more, and in some ages, there will be less. But it will never be perfectly easy. There will always be trials and opposition somewhere for at least some disciples until Christ comes. Jesus is honest with us here. It's not all a bed of roses as we follow him. But don't let that take away from the fact of his blessings that he promises us. Trials will come, but he will make them a blessing too. Because he's sanctifying us even through those trials to give us a spiritual blessing even through the persecution. But Jesus isn't done yet, is he? He's told us of the blessings that we can expect in this life, but he's not done. He says, and in the age to come, eternal life. Matthew Henry has a brilliant thing to say here in his commentary. In the age to come, eternal life. He says, if they receive a hundredfold in this world, one would think they should not be encouraged to expect any more. If Jesus is going to give you all this in this world, you'd think that they wouldn't be encouraged to expect any more. Yet, as if that were a small matter, as if, as if the spiritual blessings in the new family were a small thing for us to get from Christ, as if that were a small matter, they shall have life eternal into the bargain, which is more than 10,000-fold, 10, 10,000 times told for all their losses. This is good. We get so many blessings in this life, but they all pale in comparison to what we get in the age to come. Brothers and sisters, we get eternal life. We don't think about this enough because we're too addicted to this world. I'm, I'm speaking about myself. We get to go to heaven when we die. And when Christ returns, we get to live in the new heaven and new earth with him. How often do you think about this? That you get eternal life. I think sometimes, honestly, 
We have life too good here that we're addicted to it in a way that our forefathers were not. When life was 40 or 50 years and you're losing children left and right and your mother and father die when you're 20 years old and you're suffering this much, you look forward to the life to come. We don't long for heaven. God help us. God help us, we don't long for it. But Christian, hear the words of Christ here. We get eternal life. Immortality. But listen, not just a life that never ends, but a new perfect quality of life. We will live in a place with no sin. With no sickness, no disease, no addictions, no hunger, no thirst, no war, no hatred, no greed, no suffering, no death. We don't have words for this. This is foreign to us, is it not? A world like this we can't imagine. And more than that, much more than that, we will forever be in the immediate presence of our triune God. The God who loved us and saved us. We will forever bask in the splendor of his holiness. We will forever get to see our Jesus face to face. What a blessing this is. We will get to kiss the Lord who loves us and walk with him forever. Eternal glory with God in perfection forever. Can you see it? Can you imagine? This is glory beyond all comprehension. And listen, I'll shoot straight. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of specific information about what our eternal life will consist of. It mainly just gives us big picture stuff. But for, but what, but for whatever the Word doesn't tell us, it does tell us this. Second, 1 Corinthians 2.9 Please hear this and think on this. What no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Eternal life is so glorious that the apostle says, under divine inspiration, that there are not words to describe it. And your imagination is not good enough to imagine it. We cannot fathom this. Hear me. I, I mean this. I challenge you. Whatever glory and splendor and pleasure that you think of in your mind when you think about eternal life, try. You can think of some cool stuff. You can think of some great, like, pleasurable, joyous, great things. And you're not even beginning to scratch the top of the surface, is what the apostle says. You can't imagine it. And Jesus says, it's ours. Brothers and sisters, whatever we lose... We will not even remember. So small will it seem when compared to the eternal weight of glory. Let me read another verse to you. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. The Apostle Paul, who suffered greatly for Christ, says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen in this world are transient that is they're temporary but the things that are unseen are eternal so then if I could restate the words of our Lord here it's as if Jesus is saying don't doubt me Peter don't doubt me whatever you give up I'll give it back but I'll take it, and I'll give it back better than you could have ever imagined. Whatever is lost for my sake, whether big or small, great or little, I will take notice of it, and I will reward you. As Charles Spurgeon said, in the final account, it will be found that no person has been a loser through giving up anything for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we come to our final verse. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is quite simple, so I'll be very brief. Those who are first in this life, who keep all and let go of nothing for Christ. 
those who refuse Christ's call to give him their life, they will be last in the age to come. They'll have nothing. They'll have no eternal life. They'll have nothing. But the obedient disciple who seems to have nothing and be nothing in this life will receive the greatest honor in the life to come. That is for eternity. That one who was last on earth will be great in Christ's eyes. Christian, I beg you, live for eternity. Live for eternity. Count whatever you have to leave or lose for Christ's sake to be but a small thing in light of eternity. If I could encourage you, live your life in light of the next 10,000 years. But in closing, let me say one last thing for application. Living in a country where more and more it is beginning to cost us to be Christians, we need to hear the words of our Lord in this text. And he speaks to us here and he says, it is all worth it. That's what he says here. It's worth it. So may God seal to our hearts the words of our Lord and may we say with all conviction, indeed, it is all worth it because it is. Jesus promises. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you for the precious promises of our Lord here. We thank you for the blessed truth that whatever we lose will be given back in a greater way in this time and most especially in the life to come. Help us to live for that. And God, let us be the most confusing people to the world who will with tears mixed with joy say I gladly give it up for my Lord whatever it is that we must give help us help us to follow you and help us to live in light of eternity we pray in Christ's name Amen